0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: We've always liked the notion that we don't choose our music so much as our music chooses us. There's usually some messenger or conduit, maybe you were that lucky kid with the cool parents, or an older sibling handed their music down to you, the fun aunt, the eccentric uncle, a schoolmate or a friend, or perhaps you just found it, (laughs) sorry, it found you, by chance. It's a formative experience in a young life, like your first love or your first kiss, first broken heart first album or first CD or first shared playlist
2: just let me hear some of that rock and roll music any old way you choose it it's got a backbeat you can't lose it any old time you use it it's got to be rock and roll music if you want to dance with me if you want to dance with me I have no kick against my unless they try to
1: Hello, my name's Christian Swain, and I am the rock and roll archaeologist. And I'm not the only one. If you're here, then you too are at least a digger, if not a full blown rock and roll archaeologist yourself. We are all about to go on a decades long journey. I began my higher education in rock and roll at the Fabulous Forum in Los Angeles, California. My first concert was Queen on their 1978 tour. Yeah, pretty special. But I bet your first concert was just as special to you as Freddie Mercury and the boys were to me. This podcast series is not confined to just rock and roll, though. Or any genre or artist, for that matter. We use a wide lens and take in the music, the culture, and the technology of the late 20th century. And we'll move on into this century, too. I mean, why not? Long live rock and roll, Yes. We'll start with a simple question. How does rock and roll affect the larger society, and how does the larger society affect rock and roll? That question will spin off lots of other questions. When, why, and how did this music come about? Why was it so popular for so long? How did it morph and change and progress? How did it take on causes and or shed them over the decades? How did it reinvent itself several times? How did it influence culture and vice versa? On and on. We'll answer these questions through the eyes of rockers and writers and record industry types. Um, But more than any other perspective, we want to celebrate and elevate the fans' perspective because that's what we are. We're Rock and
0: Roll Fans. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcast presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music. Technology wow. Look at that. And rock and roll And now, on with the show.
3: Hey, hey,
1: diggers, welcome to episode one Redux. What you're about to hear is our best effort at telling the complete history of rock and roll. Crazy, I know. Uh, We're a couple of old school fans with plenty of rocker cred making an audio documentary podcast. We'll do a lot of storytelling. We'll meet some people and learn about their lives. We'll sprinkle in some history and some explanatory technical stuff about music theory. Uh, Don't get scared away by that. Uh, It's not like you have to have a degree in music or anything like that. We'll keep it fairly simple there. Finally, and most importantly, we'll try to give you some big picture stuff set the the elements in context with commentary on the times and how music and culture interacted. That is our big thing. It's a long crazy ride through half a century plus, taking in music, culture, and technology. Uh, we've got heroes and villains, rags to riches stories, rags to riches back to rags, and the soundtrack absolutely kills. We got a lot of great musical examples and we love serving those up. So, That's it. Let's get to it. Short and sweet. Let's take our first steps. I give you Episode 1 of Rock and Roll Archaeology, The Precursors. New York City, late summer of 1945. World War II is over, and Johnny's come marching home. The tragic telegrams no longer go out to American families. The dormant industrial capacity of America, pent up by a decade of depression, was then militarized and unleashed across the globe. It proved to be unstoppable. At war's end, America is a colossus the only major combatant nation that came through the conflict with the homeland, largely left unscathed. The only nation, at least for the moment, in possession of nuclear weapons. And even before the war ended, the fuse was lit for a different kind of explosion, the demographic surge we now call the baby boom. That iconic photo of a kiss in Times Square captures the temper of the times. War's over. Time to get busy, mama. The birth rate in America soared and the boomer kids kept on coming for the next 20 plus years. These kids were raised on radio. The transistor was invented in 1947. Before long, radio sets were portable and almost absurdly inexpensive. And then television came along. At first, TV supplemented the medium of radio, but it wasn't long before it was the other way around. The development of the 45 RPM record in 1948 made the high-capacity jukebox, 50, 80, or even 100 songs possible, and production lines churned them out. Now it's something any small-town burger joint or soda shop could afford to install. So once the war is over, in the span of a few short years... The technology is there for music everywhere. In your room, in your pocket, in the car, on the jukebox, after school. It might seem quaint now, clunky and outdated compared to modern gear, but at the time, this was radically new stuff. And there's more change on the way. Just a few years later, American families will gather around the little screen and watch Ed Sullivan introducing Elvis, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly... The Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Archaeologists often look at the tools of a lost civilization. They reveal much about how life was lived. So, right here, we take note of the transistor, the 45, and the jukebox, the emergence of broadcast television. These primitive tools are the precursors to our LPs, our CDs, and our iPods.
2: Each time we have a quarrel It almost breaks my heart Cause I am so afraid That we will have to part Each night I ask the stars up above why must I be a teenager in love? One day I feel so happy, the next day I feel so sad, I guess I'll to
1: take... Teenager. Oh, we didn't know this going in, but prior to the middle of the 20th century, there was no such thing as a teenager. Well, there was no such word. We're pretty sure actual teenagers have always been around. Here's the British rock writer, John Savage, author of the 2017 book, Teenage. During
0: 1944, Americans started to use the word teenager to describe the place of youth in their society. From the very beginning, it was a marketing term that recognized the spending power of adolescents. Within a culture, the thought of business in terms of national identity and individual freedom the fact that youth had become a market also meant that it had become a discrete, separate age group with its own peer-generated rituals, rites, and demands.
1: So much fun, so much heartbreak from this first generation of teens. The generation that went from mild to mod to mad. From hippies to hell's angels. From Hank to Hendrix, sock hops and soda pops. All the way to Woodstock and beyond. Love em or hate em, The leading-edge boomers left their mark politically, culturally, economically. Later generations of rockers will have their say, and we will have our say about them soon enough. But for now, we're going to stick with the boomers. Let's move up a bit now to the opening of the 50s. The scene is a suburb, maybe a tree-lined street in Shaker Heights, Ohio, or a prefab subdivision in Long Island, New York or it could be a poppin' fresh housing tract in Burbank, California. War spending and savings and the GI Bill are largely responsible for the creation of a large new middle class in America. Something, it is important to say right here, that is pretty well unprecedented in human history. All these newly minted middle class Americans, well, they have unprecedented money and leisure time and an appetite for all things they couldn't have in four years of war, preceded by a decade of depression. And corporate America, no longer leashed to war production, is more than happy to crank out the products, while American men and women crank out the kids. After a short period of adjustment, big business roars. timing, Chevrolet introduces the new
2: Motoramic Chevrolet. What's new? Everything. New show car styling. Three new drives. New synchromesh transmission. Improved super smooth power glide. Or
1: new touchdown. Over. This mythical, iconic, Aussie and Harriet. Uh, white bread, middle class, middle brow, middle of the road, American family. This is the time and these are the places for it the organization man two cars in every garage the affluent society an exciting new thing called television and look we can afford it affluence leisure time and every time you turn around another kid moves onto the block someone has got to entertain these people
2: To the, positive to,
4: negative. On to the positive Don't mess with You got to spread joy. Well, there's a
1: little problem here. It's not one hundred percent true. But we think it's safe to say that good times and leisure are not exactly conducive to compelling art. And sure enough, Nowadays, it's accepted wisdom that mainstream entertainment from the late 40s and early 50s is tame and conformist. The kind of thing you mock as hokey and trite. Again, not all of it, but that was the zeitgeist. So, we have found the audience. Holy crap, another teenage kid just moved in. Okay, okay, we've got an audience. I can hear the coins jingling in their pockets. But where do we find the sharp edges? The contradictions, the sex, and the anger that will make the cool kids want to buy it. Where is the canvas splattered with the blood and the brains of the dispossessed? Where is the ache of sexual desire? Where's the cry from the soul at the bottom of the well? Where's the rock and roll? It turns out we don't have to look too far. The fruits of victory are not available to all in post-war America. African-Americans serve and fight overseas only to come home to an America that still denies them their rightful place at the table. There are small beginnings, cracks beginning to show. Jackie Robinson breaks into Major League Baseball in 1947. The integration of the army by presidential order in 1948. In some states, rudimentary civil rights protections are tentatively discussed, but real action is still years away. The factories that employed black men and women at good wages during the war are now cutting these same workers loose to make room for returning white soldiers and sailors. Lynching and other forms of racist savagery are still a regular occurrence, and not just in the South. In many communities, there's a backlash, and segregation and racial hate actually get worse than before the war. Palpable fear, economic despair in the midst of plenty, a bad moon rising, missed chances, hard times that make ripping it up on Saturday night one goddamn urgent matter. You want some edge? You want urgency? You want something deep inside that must be expressed and cannot be denied?
2: Ah, oh, you can talk about the pit Barbecue The band was jumping people too. Ah, I mess around. They're doing the mess around. They're doing the mess around. Everybody doing the mess around.
1: Ah, everybody was Jewish. It's often hard go to go. pinpoint things in time, but the mess around, an early hit by Ray Charles, feels like an important moment. 1953, when white kids and black music started getting to know each other and became fast friends. Ray Charles, crossover artist, before anyone knew the term crossover artist. Speaking of crossovers, the crossover in music reflected a much larger crossover, an exodus, uh, more accurately, that caused an entire population to shift places and associations, the Great Migration. By 1930, the year Ray Charles was born, the Great Migration of African Americans out of the rural South to the cities of the North, the Great Migration, had been underway for at least a decade. We'll get into this in detail in a later chapter, but for now, suffice it to say that this is a huge factor in setting up the rise of rock and roll. Eventually, Ray Charles was carried along on this wave, but he was stuck in the Deep South until his teenage years, when his musical talent advanced far enough to buy him a train ticket out.
2: I want you baby from time to time but you just gotta listen i up baby no mind so I'm moving on keep moving on I'm rolling on you've broken your bow and it's all over now so I'm moving on moving on that big down the track, you're your true lover, Daddy. Coming back, I'm moving on. moving on. I'm rolling on. Roll on, roll on. you flying too high for my blue sky, so I'm moving on. moving on. Someday, baby, when you had your play, you're going to want your daddy, but your daddy will say, Keep on moving. Keep moving on. Keep rolling on. Roll on, roll on.
1: The absence of one sense amplifies and enhances the senses that remain the visually impaired tend to have excellent hearing. That's been accepted wisdom for a long time. In 2010, a peer-reviewed study done at the London Institute of Education was able to actually quantify that. The conclusions are nothing short of astonishing. Blind children are 4,000 times more likely to have perfect pitch, a highly predictive marker of exceptional musical ability. 4,000 times more likely than their fully-sighted peers. So even as childhood glaucoma robbed Ray Charles of his sight, it gifted him. Like it often does. Fate and circumstances took with one hand and gave with the other. The genius they called Ray, the genius. Uh, Kind of an overused term, really. It gets tossed around a bit too casually and gets watered down as a consequence. But in the case of Ray Charles, genius is entirely appropriate, even understated. And when you consider the hellish circumstances of his early life, the things he had to overcome, well, it transcends genius. It goes beyond greatness. It's like a a one-in-ten-billion thing. I was born with music inside me, Ray would sometimes say. That's the only explanation I know. Here's the musicologist Henry Pleasance, author of The Great Singers from the Dawn of Opera to Our Own Time. It is the singing of a man whose feelings are too intense for satisfactory verbal or conventional melodic articulation. He can't tell it to you. He can't even sing it to you. He has to cry out to you or shout to you in tones eloquent of despair or exaltation.
2: Well. I got a woman way over town that's good to me, oh yeah, say I got a woman way over town good to me, oh yeah, she give me money when I'm in need, yeah she's a kind I got a we way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah, she says
1: early in the morning. At the age of 18, Ray made his way out of the Deep South, all the way out to the opposite corner of the country, Seattle. Ray would make the West Coast his home for the rest of his days. For the next four years, he worked as a sideman and cut some records for a small label called Swing Time Records. Swing Time went bankrupt in 1952, and an up-and-coming label, Atlantic Records, brought up Ray's contract for $2,500. Those early Ray Charles records on Atlantic have become legendary, and for good reason. They sound amazing. A big, fat sound that was way, way ahead of its time. Those songs just came pouring out of the jukebox speakers. A brilliant young recording engineer named Tom Dowd was behind the mixing desk. Tom was handpicked by Atlantic Records exec Ahmet Erdogan to work with Ray. It was the beginning of Tom's long, marvelous career as an engineer and producer. (laughs) Remember that name, Tom Dowd. It will come up again. When Ray signed with Atlantic, he was a prodigy who did a pretty sharp imitation of Nacking Cole. During his time at Atlantic, he developed into the proverbial complete package. A virtuoso pianist, bandleader, composer, and singer, and the biggest and most important of the rock and roll precursors. ¶¶ Meanwhile, back in white America, if you listen carefully, there are whispers and hints foretelling the coming upheaval in popular culture. From New York to San Francisco, in coffee houses and bookstores, the beat poets rap out the revolution. Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, and their spiritual brothers and sisters have rejected middle-class morality and the commodification of art and expression. Compared to, say, Ray Charles, these beats are sons and daughters of privilege. Ginsburg grew up middle class and studied at Columbia. Former altar boy and football star Jack Kerouac, similar story. Their anguish is the pain and anger felt by the bright and the sensitive who encounter injustice. And they give voice to a thought that has long bubbled below the surface, something taboo in the America of that time. This is all fucked up. We don't have to live like this. Through art and example, they reject materialism, trash convention, and embrace hedonism. They burn with anger at the shabby, unjust treatment of their African-American brothers and sisters. They're activists for gender equality and for an end to the marginalizing of gay and lesbian Americans.
2: I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night.
1: Howl, and Other Poems was published in 1955, but Ginsburg had been workshopping and honing it for years. Like many things we will discuss in this episode, it fermented and churned below the surface for some years before busting out in the mid-50s.
2: You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? My tears feel like rain. Ain't that a shame? My heart when you see it, we'll shame.
1: My feel like Now our tour of hard times takes us across the pond to the United Kingdom. This is a bit of an aside, but in a few years, it will become central, the skiffle craze in England during the 50s. For now, it is one more illustration of how hard times can be the mother of great art. In contrast to the sunny prosperity taking hold in the USA, England and her people suffered terribly in the immediate post-war years. The government was bankrupt. Nobody was hiring. Large chunks of London and other cities were still bombed out. Rationing and conscription persisted years after the war was over. Prosperity and renewal came eventually, but in fits and starts, and not really until the late 50s. No money for the show? DIY. Do it yourself. Or head down to the corner to watch Willie and the Poor Boys. Skiffle music originated in the American South in the early 20th century, Spasm bands, (laughs) I love that, spasm bands, or jug bands, or later on skiffle bands, played simple folk tunes in little clubs and cafes, and more often than not, on street corners. In the early 50s, a cat named Lonnie Donegan, the skiffle king, resurrected the style in the UK and had some major hits, but far more important. Skiffle was a grassroots musical movement among working-class Brits, a reaction to the drab austerity of daily life at the time. Kids all over the country started skiffle groups. The ethic was do-it-yourself, using inexpensive banjos and guitars and improvised homemade instruments like saws and washboards and the washtub bass. The tunes were simple. The skill level required was minimal. And by the end of the 50s, There were thousands of skiffle groups in the British Isles, no exaggeration. In fact, that is a low estimate. Many a rock legend was a skiffler as a lad. Skiffle and the grassroots music scene in the UK will come up again in a big way. But for now, let's wing it back over the Atlantic.
2: Life could be a dream, life could be a dream. Do 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 some boom Life could be dreamy if I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life would be a dream Sweetheart, hello, hello again Shaboom and open with me again Boom, boom, boom Day-long, ding-dong lang a lang Oh, 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 pip, a ba roba Life could be a dream If only all my precious plans would come true If you would let me spend my whole life loving you Life could be a dream
1: The term doo-wop didn't come along until 1960 or so, but the musical genre got going in the 1930s. We'll use the term doo-wop as our shorthand. By the mid-50s, the vocal group sound, or doo-wop, was well-developed. The Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers, uh, with their polished shows and sweet four-part harmonies, had hit after hit and sold out nightly. Like the skiffle craze in England, doo-wop became a grassroots musical movement on street corners all across America. It was sweet and fun and especially popular in the Northeast. Seemed like every time you came around a corner in Brooklyn or Philly, there was a group of fellas hanging out and harmonizing. As the 50s went on, it spread out and there were regional strains of doo-wop. In New York and Philly, it had a definite Italian-American flavor. Think Dion and the Belmonts out on the west coast young latino singers took it up
2: earth angel earth angel will you be mine my darling dear love you all the time i'm just a
1: It's the perfect example of the classic doo-wop chord progression. One to the minor six, to the four, to the five. If you're a guitarist, play a G chord, to an E minor, to a C chord, to a D. One measure on each chord in 3-4 time. The slow dance at the sock hop. It's more of a pop formula than rock and roll, but we won't be purists about it. Here's the other thing about doo-wop. It's got legs. It keeps popping up coming back around. You can hear doo-wop strains in James Brown's first big hit, Please, Please, Please. Lots of early Motown and Atlantic soul hits had the doo-wop DNA. The Beach Boys had several big doo-wop hits in the 60s, notably Surfer Girl, which cops the same classic progression and three-four time signature. One of our all-time favorite iconoclasts, Frank Zappa, made a whole doo-wop album in the early 70s called Cruisin' with Reuben and the Jets. It somehow manages to savagely mock doo-wop and pay loving tribute to it all at the same time. Manhattan Transfer and Billy Joel had top 10 hits with the doo-wop sound during the 80s. Huey Lewis scored his own top 10 with a remake of Curtis Mayfield's It's All Right in 1993. Sweet, radio-friendly harmony singing, it just never goes out of style. We love it too, but we're rockers through and through. So, we go in more for that soulful blues stomp and holler. Hit it, Big Joe. I
4: believe the door, you the you know
1: Let's head to the hard scrabble industrial flats of Cleveland, Ohio. It's the summer of 1953, the year Ray Charles recorded and released The Mess Around. Since the war's end, we have observed urgent undercurrents churning through the culture. But the musical mainstream is bland and pasty white, not very appetizing to a large and restless bunch of American teens. But we have the key ingredients for something hot and juicy and a whole lot spicier. We have an affluent, restless young audience, and we have the exultant rhythm and blues cry that will soothe their impatient, horny souls. How do we bring that spicy hot gumbo right to the table in millions of American homes
2: all at once? Hello, everybody. This is the king of rock and roll, Alan Freed, with a choral rock and roll dance party and the big beat in popular music in America. So gather the gang around for a rock and good time with our own big rock and roll band starring tenor sax stars Sam the Man Taylor, Big Al Sears, and Freddie Mitchell. And here we go with Right Now, Right Now.
1: summer of 1953, the Moondog, Helen Freed, had a smash on his hands. It had been one incredible year. Up until the spring of 52, Freed was a regional DJ of modest accomplishments, a minor local celebrity in Akron, Ohio. For the last year or so, he had been hosting a late-night show to a small but fanatically devoted audience in Cleveland. He had originally come to Cleveland to try to break into local television, but no takers. Alan ended up working the graveyard shift at a music station, mainly because it was the only gig he could get. He had not left his Akron show on good terms. He was relatively young, early 30s, and a bit on the frenetic side. Not really tame by today's standards, but compared to his peers at the time, he was pretty revved up. His career had plodded along in an unspectacular manner until a Cleveland record store owner, name of Leo Mintz, pushed Freed to play so-called race records. That is, rhythm and blues records by African-American artists. The white kids who patronized Leo's store just couldn't get enough of the race records. In July of 1951, Freed premiered The Moondog House on WJW Radio, a late-night show featuring r and records and sponsored by Record Rendezvous, Mintz's store in Cleveland. Other advertisers and many of the good folks of Cleveland balked at the idea of a show on a white station with a white DJ devoted to black R&B records. As a bit of subterfuge intended to cool the jets of listeners and potential advertisers, Freed took to using the term rock and roll, a bit of sexual slang heard in some of the songs he was playing. Whether or not Freed realized he was promoting the use of a double entendre for doing the nasty is impossible to know. We'd like to think he knew exactly what he was doing and secretly enjoyed the hell out of it. Fried was already an ardent fan of R&B and swing music, as was Leo Mintz. We want to point out that while both men saw a commercial opportunity, no doubt they were also fair-minded gents who loathed race segregation in America and they were genuine fans of the black musicians they were playing and promoting. The black artists who work with Freed over the years are near unanimous in expressing their affection and gratitude. Ben Fong the Rolling Stone writer and editor, wrote the biography page for AlanFreed.com, a tribute site built by Judith Fisher Freed. Here's an excerpt that will wrap back around to the earlier point we made about Alan Freed's highly eventful year.
0: Freed soon embraced the music and its young fans. As his Moondog shows popularity increased, he decided to stage a dance with R&B stars. The Moondog Coronation Ball on March 21, 1952 was a smash, literally. The 10,000 capacity Cleveland Arena was sold out, but another 20,000 people showed up and many tried to crash the gates. The dance had to be canceled, but it is widely considered by historians as the first ever rock and roll concert.
1: Fong Torres is a bit mild in his description here. Newspaper accounts of the time called the outside scene a riot. The show itself lasted exactly one song. R&B saxophonist Hucklebuck Williams barely managed to get through a tune before the fire marshal shut it down. Freed apologized for the debacle on his show the next day, but we're pretty sure there was a sly grin or two being flashed around the studio, because that was when Alan Freed, to use a modern expression, started blowing up. It was also a mixed-race event. The crowd was about two-thirds white and one-third black in composition, something almost unheard of back then. And we gotta wonder how much of the post-concert backlash was racist fear-mongering over black kids and white kids getting together for a good time. But there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Right. And the backlash, the bad publicity, was indeed ferocious. But while stodgy editorialists clucked disapproval and politicians professed outrage, while preachers promised damnation... Alan Freed's ratings skyrocketed. By the summer of 1953, tapes of his shows were making it to New York City stations and elsewhere, and airplay on the Moondog show was enough to get a record jumping off the store shelves. A year later, Freed was behind the mic at New York's most powerful all-music station, WINS, and the Moondog rock and roll party show was nationally syndicated, a write-up, in Life Magazine, anointed him the founder of the rock and roll craze. And the legend was codified. So, we'll hear from Alan Freed again. But we've made it to the birth of rock and roll. No more hints or foreshadows. The precursors have precursed. We are here. No, we can't nail it down to an exact date and time. Archaeologists rarely can. Sometime in the summer of 1954 is about as close as we can get
2: one two three o'clock four o'clock rock five six seven o'clock eight o'clock rock nine ten eleven o'clock twelve o'clock rock we're gonna rock around the clock tonight but that rags over.
1: Bill Haley can fairly be described as a journeyman musician of modest talent, but with a lot of drive and ambition. Like the guy we just met, Alan Freed, Bill Haley was a frenetic ham, a born showman, a workaholic, and an alcoholic, too. The similarities don't end there. Bill also had a keen ear for the rhythm and sound of teen culture. At a gig, he overheard some kids using the expression, Crazy man, crazy and used that phrase as the title of his first hit tune. Crazy Man Crazy, charted in 1953, and it was the first rock and roll song to be televised nationally as part of the soundtrack for a television play starring James Dean. Bill was what marketing types these days would call an early adopter. Raised in a musical family... He was exposed to varied, eclectic influences from a young age. Jazz, classical country swing, rhythm and blues, show tunes, and novelty songs. Bill Haley heard them all growing up. He'd spent the last decade as a working musician crisscrossing the country, banging out all these styles before audiences. He honed a fine sense of what his audience was looking for, and Bill had the ambition to give the people what they wanted. Bill Haley and his Comets recorded Rock Around the Clock at the Pythian Temple Studios in New York for Decca Records, April of 1954. It was released the following month as a B-side to a song called Thirteen Women and Only One Man in Town. Thirteen Women went on to richly deserved obscurity, Rock Around the Clock, went on to sell somewhere north of 65 million copies. And it still sells well today as an individual download and in oldies collections. I said 1954 was the birth year, and I'll make that case further. But while Rock Around the Clock enjoyed some chart success in the summer of 54, it didn't hit big until a year later, when it was featured over the opening credits in the 1955 movie, Blackboard Jungle. It was re-released as an A-side that May and shot straight to number one, the very first rock and roll record to attain that lofty position. So, 1954 was the birth year, but 1955 was when rock and roll burst out onto the world stage as a noisy, unruly, out-of-control toddler. But we're going to stay in 1954 for a little longer to talk about two really big political moments in America that helped create this precocious and unruly brat rock and roll. So let's put our chair's scratchy 45 RPM single of Rock Around the Clock back into its sleeve for now. Two political events in 1954 America, not unlike rock and roll music, had been churning and burning for some years below the placid conformist surface. In the spring and summer of 54, they busted out, and things were never going to be the same afterwards. On May 17th, the Supreme Court of the United States published the long-awaited Brown v. Board of Education decision. Everything about the Brown decision was a blockbuster, a game-changer. It is not at all hype or exaggeration to state that it was, and is, the most impactful and important Supreme Court decision in the history of the American Republic. It's not just us claiming that. Many a judicial expert and many a distinguished historian will agree with that assessment. First of all, it was a unanimous decision. No dissents, no separate concurring opinions. As such, it was a smackdown, an utter repudiation of the long disgraceful practice of race separation in America. The Brown decision was about school segregation, but its central assertion, separate is inherently unequal, was a devastating body blow to American apartheid across every institution. Legal segregation died hard in America, and de facto segregation is still very much with us, unfortunately. The Brown decision was just the opening chapter of a violent, tumultuous episode in American history, the Civil Rights Movement. A full generation after Brown, Segregation would still rear its ugly head, and to this very day, there are still plenty of dead-ender lunatics who insist that it's a good idea. As we've seen, Alan Freed and the R&B artists he championed, the beat poets, and others had enabled de facto integration. Dances, poetry readings, get-togethers, concerts, where white kids and black kids mixed freely. It had not brought about the end of Western civilization. In fact, everybody seemed to be having a pretty good time. We don't seriously contend that rock and roll was a main driver of the civil rights movement. There were many, many factors, social, cultural, and political. To say otherwise is to trivialize the courage and hard work of generations of civil rights activists. But rock and roll played a part, even here in the 50s. And that influence would grow in the coming decade of the 60s. One could argue that the Brown decision simply acknowledged legally what was already becoming a cultural reality with many young Americans. In its own brash, in your face kind of way, rock and roll expressed what the Supreme Court had said It's time to drop the barriers, let the crossovers occur. Everybody will be better off if we do. and hokey much of American popular culture was in those early post-war years. Early rock and roll was, in large part, a response to that, a pushback. Fear of the communist menace was the big driver of this culture of conformity, and the bland, colorless art and fluffy, inconsequential entertainment it inspired. Which leads us to our next topic, McCarthyism, or anti-communist paranoia in America, It didn't come out of nowhere. The Soviet Union dropped the Iron Curtain across Eastern Europe in 1948 and successfully tested its own atom bomb in 1949. China had fallen under communist rule, and in late 1950, American boys were routed in North Korea by Chinese troops. A bloody stalemate set in until an unsatisfying draw was negotiated in July of 1953. A lifetime ago now, But U.S. troops are still there. But it was mostly hype and paranoia, egged on by opportunist politicians and irresponsible fear-mongering in the press. Far too many Americans turned inward, turned on each other. Loyalty oaths, blacklists, and congressional investigations of un-American activities. These things had a deeply chilling effect at the workplace, in government, and most definitely on art, culture, and entertainment. It was just not a time to make waves or push back against the prevailing attitude of timid conformity, not if you valued your freedom, your paycheck, or your future prospects. This America that had turned on itself had a leader, Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. He scared the shit out of people, and for good reason— McCarthy ruined careers, subjected innocent Americans to public humiliation, and pressured them to sell out their friends. This greasy, drunken demagogue drove good people to despair and even suicide. To their immense credit, some leaders, both conservative and liberal, saw through McCarthy and stood up to him. And courageous artists like the playwright Arthur Miller used their platforms to denounce his witch-hunt tactics. President Harry Truman detested McCarthy, and even fellow Republican Dwight Eisenhower kept him at arm's length. But far too many others were unwilling to take him on. In 1954, McCarthy would finally get his public comeuppance on national television. First, in early spring, the iconic journalist Edward R. Murrow devoted several episodes of his See It Now program to McCarthy, Confronted with aggressive questioning from a journalist who was not the least bit afraid of him, McCarthy was exposed as a pathological liar and opportunist who stepped on good people to advance his career. In one final episode, on April 13th,
2: 1954,
1: Murrow offered his contemptuous dismissal of tail gunner
2: Joe. I have worked for CBS for more than 19 years the company has subscribed fully to my integrity and responsibility as a broadcaster and as a loyal American I require no lectures from the junior senator from Wisconsin as to the dangers or terrors of communism having searched my conscience in my files I cannot contend that I have always been right or wise but I have attempted to pursue the truth with some diligence and to report it even though as in this case I had been warned in advance that I would be subjected to the attentions of Senator McCarthy. We shall hope to deal with matters of more more vital interest to the country next week. Good night and good luck.
1: The next chapter was the Army-McCarthy hearings in the summer of 54. ABC television covered them, gavel to gavel, and on live television, millions saw and heard this impassioned plea from the attorney, Joseph Welch.
3: Let us
2: not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency?
1: No sense of decency. The enduring legacy of Senator Joseph McCarthy. In the wake of his televised meltdown, his poll numbers cratered, and he was censured by his fellow senators. He served nearly three more years, drunk and discredited, until he died in 1957 from complications brought on by decades of alcoholism. Like segregation, anti-communist paranoia is still with us. Decades after the fall of the Soviet Union, it still has its advocates. To this day, some insist that McCarthy was an American hero. But even so, it's fair to say... Right here, in 1954, the lid started to come off. The Brown decision opened the civil rights era. McCarthyism had been at least partially discredited. It gets a little easier. It gets a little less dangerous, a little less costly, to just be yourself and express yourself. So, enough of hateful demagogues and their venomous politics. Who wants some rock and roll? We promised you a joyous birth and we are about to see the baby.
2: Well, that's all right, mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, mama. Just any way you do, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. do done told me, Papa done told me too, son that guy, you fool and wish he ain't no good to you, but that's all right, that's all right, that's all right, but oh mama anyway do.
1: Scotty Moore brought him. Scotty, 22 at the time, was an ambitious young man from a musical family. He was a guitarist who worshipped the great Chet Atkins, wanted to be Chet Atkins. Scotty led a local combo called the Starlight Wranglers. The Starlights played country tunes sprinkled with R&B hits copped off the Alan Freed radio program. Scotty would drop by the Memphis Recording Service a couple of afternoons a week after he clocked out of his day gig. He'd have a coffee and pie with the owner, Sam Phillips, and the two men would talk music. One afternoon, in early July, Sam told him, Hey, there's this kid I want you to check out for me. Lives with his folks in your neighborhood. Elvis Presley. Scotty had heard of Elvis, but that was about it. The name sounded absurd, like something out of science fiction, he later said. But Sam kept talking him up. Scotty decided to give Elvis a call. Peter Grolnick, author of Last Train to Memphis takes up the story.
3: On Sunday, July 4th, Elvis showed up at Scotty's house on Bell's in his old Lincoln. He was wearing a black shirt, pink pants with a black stripe, white shoes, and a greasy ducktail, and asked, is this the right place, when Scotty's wife, Bobby, answered the door.
1: Scotty was impressed, even though he couldn't quite explain why. The kid could definitely sing. Like a lot of southern boys, he had that gospel background. He could play a little guitar, too. He dressed flashy, and he was undeniably handsome and charismatic. But he seemed strange somehow. In a good way. Again, Scotty couldn't quite put his finger on it. He knew Sam wanted a report, so Scotty called him up as soon as Elvis left. Sam Phillips booked them for the next evening, July 5th, 1954. It was a long, mostly fruitless session. Sam called a break and stepped out for a bit. When he came back, he heard the boys running through the Arthur Crudup blues number. That's all right. Peter Gorolnik once again.
3: Sam recognized it right away. He, He was amazed that the boy even knew Arthur, Big Boy Crudup. Nothing in any of the songs he had tried so far gave any indication that he was drawn to this kind of music at all. But this was the sort of music that Sam had long ago wholeheartedly embraced. This was the, the sort of music of which he had said, this is where the soul of man never dies. And the way the boy performed it, it, it came across with a freshness and an exuberance. It, it came across with a kind of clear-eyed, unabashed originality that Sam sought in all the music that he recorded. It, it was different. It was itself.
1: It was a jittery, frantic fusion of country and R&B we now call rockabilly. And it was itself, it was something special. Three days later, a popular local DJ premiered the song, and listeners immediately jammed the station's switchboard, requesting replays and more info about this sensational new artist. Long black train. Come on, baby, go. on July 17th, Elvis, Scotty, and bassist Bill Black took the stage for an unpaid showcase gig at the Bon Air Club in Memphis. The reception was polite, but a scant two weeks later, on July 30th, the three young musicians played their first paid gig at the bandstand shell in Overton Park, opening for Slim Whitman, a popular country act. It was a big summertime crowd, and Elvis was nervous. His nervousness and a strong response to the backbeat made his legs shake. His wide-cut pants emphasized the movements, and the crowd, especially the young women, just went bananas. Already a natural showman who could read an audience, Elvis started playing it up, shaking it up when he would move off the mic between verses. A signature song and a signature move. Destiny. So much more to say about the young man from Tupelo, Mississippi, and we'll pick that right up in our next episode. I'm Christian Swain, and this is Rock and Roll Archaeology, Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you in Episode 2. Keep up the rockin'.
0: Rock and Roll Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.